96, Psalm 96. Now, uh, the Psalms are in actuality uh, a collection of hymns, a collection of songs that were used in the worship of the nation of Israel. So it's really a hymn book. It's what the Psalms are. But there are some themes that bind these songs uh, together. And I think Kendall easily gets at it well when he writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. In other words, Dr. Easley saying there that the Psalms remind us that when times are wonderful, God deserves our praise. And when times are difficult, guess what? God still deserves our praise because he's the one calling the shots. He's in control and he even uses our hardship for good. Also, uh, this quote reminds us that when times are good, we should trust God. We should uh, have our confidence in him. And guess what? When times are bad, we should still trust God and have our confidence in him. And the Psalms remind us of those themes over and over and over again. John Piper, I love this quote, writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. So we resonate with the Psalms, we love the Psalms because we see different emotions in the Psalms that we understand, that we get. And uh, these Psalms are wonderful because we see about any emotion you can name found somewhere in the pages of the Psalms and the, the different psalmists dealing with these emotional uh, issues are bringing them to the Lord in worship. And so we, we connect with the emotions we find in the Psalms. We made it all the way to Psalm 96. I've titled this psalm, Declare His Glory Among the Nations, which is a direct quote from this psalm and i'm going to read it and then we're going to pray they want to just jump right in and see if we can just dig a little bit and get to the bottom of what this psalm is all about and uh importantly what this psalm calls you and i to do so look there with me psalm 96 verse 1 the bible says oh sing to the lord a new song sing to the lord all the earth ever heard someone say in church i don't like all that new music I'm just, okay, anyway. Sing the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory, here it is, among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the, the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his 
faithfulness. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we're grateful for another opportunity to gather, uh, to fellowship, Lord, uh, to, to step away from the busyness uh, and the routines of life, to just take a deep breath and to, Lord, I'll give you space, uh, Lord, time for you to speak to us through your word. And I pray that you would do that tonight, that you would, uh, Lord, apply your word to our hearts by your spirit that we might be transformed. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. We pray your hand would be upon us in this, in this room. We pray your hand would be upon all the activities and ministries that happen on this campus tonight. May Jesus be exalted. And we'll thank you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I saw a survey recently about the Great Commission. And in this survey, they asked uh, churchgoers, folks that were regularly in church, if they knew what the Great Commission was, if, if they had heard of the Great Commission. Uh, 25% had heard of it, but did not know what it meant when they heard the, the term Great Commission. 51% never had even heard of the phrase Great Commission. Only 17% of those surveyed had heard of the Great Commission and could articulate it. Now, that's a big deal because the Great Commission's a big deal. And just to refresh your memory as to what the Great Commission is, uh, the Great Commission is the term we give to some of the last words Jesus gave after his death on the cross, after his resurrection, and before he ascended to the Father. And the Great Commission is when Jesus gathered his disciples on a mountain before he went back to heaven, and he said, all authority, this is found in the end of Matthew 28, and there's a form of it found in all the Gospels, but he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the Nations, And so that's the, the driving verb, uh, command of that commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now to make disciples means that we want people to become learners or followers of Jesus. And so here's how we do that. We go to people that don't know Jesus. We tell them about Jesus so they can believe in Jesus and begin to follow him. And once they become followers of Jesus, it says in the Great Commission after we've made them a disciple by sharing the gospel, then we are to baptize them. There are three participles to tell us how to do the Great Commission. We're to baptize them as a mark of their new life in Christ. We're to, um, we're to teach them uh, everything uh, that Christ commands. Uh, we're to teach them how to follow Christ, how to obey Christ, how to live for Christ. And Jesus said, as you go forward with this Great Commission, you are uh, assured of my presence, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. And so the church has traditionally called that command to make disciples of all the nations the Great Commission. Now, if that's a, a, an important command, if that command should shape our life and our focus, what does it say that only 17% of, of regular churchgoers could articulate it, had heard of it, and could tell you what it meant? And so we need to understand what the Great Commission is because... God's heart is for the nations. And the Great Commission is not just some New Testament idea. We see God's heart for the nations all the way back in the book of Genesis. And, and really throughout all of God's word, we see this heart, this desire for the nations to worship him. That's what Psalm 96 is about. It's, it's about declaring his glory among the nations. 
So keeping that in mind, I, I want us to, to think about the Great Commission against the backdrop of God's heart for all the peoples to hear of Him, to believe in Him, and worship Him. And I want to pose two questions uh, that this psalm raises and then answer those questions from Psalm 96. Question number one, what's the desire of the psalmist? What, what is the psalmist desiring here? Look what it says there in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. Now look at this next phrase. All the earth. Now, it's true the, the psalms were collections of hymns that were used in the corporate worship of the people of Israel. But notice there's a desire for worship of the one true God to happen beyond just the people of Israel. He's saying, let there be a new song. All the earth. And declares glory among the nations. Uh, look what it says there in verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, every clan of every uh, people group. Now, whenever you see the word peoples uh, in the Old Testament, it's equivalent to the, the term that's often translated nations in the New Testament, ethne. Uh, that word means more than just geopolitical entities. So when we, th when we think of nations, we think of like United States of America, right? We think of Belgium. We think of... Congo, we think of Kenya, we think of Spain, we think of Portugal, we, we think of, of geopolitical nations. That's not what this word peoples mean. That's not what the word nations or ethne means in the New Testament. These words mean people groups, groups of people that are bound together, not through geopolitical realities, but people that are bound together by common culture and language, okay, people groups. So here's what that means. If you go and start a church in Belgium, you, you haven't reached the nations. You've started a church in Belgium, but to, to really reach Belgium, you need to reach all the different people groups living in Belgium. Does that make sense? You, you can't just go, go start a church in Belgium and say, okay, we've reached Belgium, on to the next nation. You say, we want to reach all the different people groups. Claire and I were in Belgium uh, this past fall, and there are... French-speaking Belgian people, and there are Dutch-speaking Belgian people, and they are vastly different, vastly different. And, and to reach Belgium means you reach the different people groups living in Belgium. Does that, that make sense? This word, this word peoples here speaks of the different people groups. Uh, according to uh, which um, missionary organization you look at, there are right around 11,000 people groups in our world. Uh, groups of people, some small, some very, very large, that are bound together by common language and culture. And so we're to get the gospel to every one of those people groups. That's what it means to disciple or make disciples of all the nations. It's not just get a group to Belgium and a group to Kenya and a group to Uganda and a group to Ecuador. We're to reach all the different people groups living in those geopolitical nations. And we say, well, how are we doing on that? Anybody curious how we're doing on reaching the people groups? Uh, there are about, uh, there are over 6,000 unreached people groups. Okay, that means groups of people that have, uh, as uh, part of their population, less than 2% evangelical Christian. All right? So these are some very large groups and very little evangelical influence, very little access people have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, uh, making disciples, uh, all, uh, teaching the Bible. Uh, very little access. In, so that's 6,000. 
uh, of these people groups have very little evangelical Christian work in them. Now, about half of those, a little over 3,000 of those unreached people groups, we call unengaged unreached people groups, which means that they have no evangelical uh, influence to speak of, and no one's really trying to engage them with the gospel. No, there's, there's not, not really anyone engaging them, sharing the gospel with them. There's no evangelical work to speak of. And uh, that's a terrifying thought. Here's what that means. It means that in, in these unreached people groups or unengaged unreached people groups, you have people that are born, they, they grow, they um, experience life, they get married, they find a, a job or an occupation, they have kids, they have grandkids maybe, and they die, and they go through their entire life never having heard of Jesus. Now think about that. And, and we're talking about millions and millions of people uh, that have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. And the psalmist here says, we want his glory to be declared to all of these folks, to the, the nations, the people groups. that We want them to hear of this this one true God. Uh, David Platt famously said that the only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one's looking for you. I remember uh, I was hunting with my dad when I was uh, a, a boy, a little boy, and, and we went into the woods together before daylight, and we found a little place, and I sat down by a tree, and he said, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to sit down by a tree, and and I, we'll meet back up, you know, uh, like 10 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And so the, the sun comes up, and I'm sitting there, and I, I decide to go try to look for my dad. And I get up, and I'm, I, I have a, no idea where I am, and I'm lost, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of walking in circles. And I'm getting panicky, and, and I'm calling out for my dad, and, 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 and I was getting kind of nervous. And, and, and then all of a sudden, I heard my dad's voice, Wade! That was a comforting feeling, right? A comforting feeling. But imagine being lost and no one's looking for you. That, that's the state of, of millions and millions and millions of people in our world. And yet here we see God's heart. He wants those people to worship him because he's worthy. Ascribe to him the glory to his name. He's worthy of their worship, right? The, 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 the false gods they worship, they're not worthy of their worship. Only the one true God is worthy of worship. And so the psalmist here has a desire for the whole earth to be full of praise for the one true God. That's the desire of the psalmist, and that's the desire of the Lord. He, he wants uh, all peoples to give him the praise that he is due. And that's certainly what the Great Commission was about, Genesis, uh, uh, Matthew 28. Make disciples of all the ethne, all the people groups on the face of the earth. That's our commission. Now, how will this desire come about? How's this going to happen? How do we, how do we reach these 6,000 unreached people groups, 3,000 plus unengaged unreached people groups? How do we reach them with the knowledge of the one true God? How do we reach them with the, the message of the gospel? Well, here you go. God's people, this is in your notes, God's people must desire for all the peoples to give God the worship he alone deserves. You might call this the goal of missions. In other words, we've got to have the same heart that God has. We, we want to have the desire for people to worship the one true God. 
to give him the worship that he alone deserves. I've had uh, several paradigm-shifting moments in my life where I read something or heard something, and it was a game-changer for me. It changed the way I viewed things and saw things and thought about things and, and did things. And one of those moments came when I was uh, in seminary, and I picked up a book by uh, John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. And the first page of that book gave me a sentence that, that really changed my thought of what missions is. And here was the sentence. Missions exists because worship doesn't. We don't do missions just because it's some program we're supposed to do in church. The reason we go and share Jesus and send people out and pray and give to Lottie Moon and all these other, the reason we do that is because we have a firm conviction that God is worthy of worship from every tribe and tongue. And we want them to hear the truth so that they can give him the worship that he deserves. As we share the good news and more people, listen, and more people get saved, God gets more worship. And he's worthy of it, right? As we share the gospel, there are new songs being sung to him all over the world. And that should be the, the goal of, of our individual lives, the goal of our ministry, the goal of our church that more and more people hear about this one true God. They hear about Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus saves sinners so that they can be reconciled to this God and give him the praise that he alone deserves. So God's people must desire for all peoples to give God the worship he alone deserves. Another quote from Piper here, he says, You were made for this. I mean, all of you who say from the heart, Jesus is Lord. When you confess Jesus as the Lord of the universe, you sign up for significance beyond all your dreams. I mean, businessmen, homemakers, students, to belong to Jesus is to embrace nations for which he died and which he will rule. Your heart was made for this, and there will always be a serious or mild sickness in your soul until you embrace this global calling. In other words, if, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, but the world is not on your heart, there's no concern for the nations. You're missing the very heart of God. You're missing one of the key reasons that God left you here. To make His name known to the nations. You know, when, when you were saved the moment of salvation, He could have taken you directly to heaven right then, right? And, and heaven would have been better than here. Right? Why'd he leave you? Why'd he save you and leave you here for a while? Why'd he give you more days? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 1, he says in verse 21, he says, to live is Christ. I get more opportunity to serve him and tell others about him. To die is gain. If I die, I get to go to heaven. That's better than being here. But every day God gives me is a, is a, is a day I get to make much of Christ. And if you're a Christian and the, the nations are not on your heart, you're missing what you were made for. And, and there's no wonder that so many Christians are bored with life and they're missing any sense of significance and purpose and meaning because they're not in step with God's agenda for the nations to hear of Jesus. 
so that he gets glory. And so, how will this desire come about? God's people must desire for all peoples to give God the worship he alone deserves. Secondly, God's people must treasure God to such a degree that they must tell others about him. You might call this the fuel for missions. The fuel. What gets us, what keeps us fueled up? What keeps us going when when it's hard? This 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 treasuring of God, this this glorying in God to such a degree that you you must tell others. You want others to know. Look what it says in Psalm 96, verse 2. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Look in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. He'll never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equities. Look, the heavens glad, the earth rejoice. And, and so what we see happening here is, is the psalmist is, is excited about the Lord. And, and because he's excited, he, he must tell others. He wants others to know about this God the way he knows about this God. And so... What does this mean, to treasure God to such a degree that they must tell others about Him? Well, number one, we must treasure God's glory. Treasure God's glory. What does it mean to treasure God's glory? It, it mean, listen to me. It means to be impressed by God. It means to be excited about the Lord. It means that, that you find your joy in Him. Because if that's happening, if you're impressed by God, you're excited by God, you're finding your joy in the Lord, then the, the natural thing will be to just talk about it, right? I mean, the, the example I always give is when, I, when Claire and I finally got to the Memphis area and we finally ate real barbecue, I was back on the phone with folks in Florida saying, you've got to come and try this barbecue. It's the real deal. It's the best, right? It's the best. And, and, and I was excited about it, so I talked about it. And that's what I mean by treasuring God's glory. Now, how do you do that? How do you get excited about the Lord? How do you treasure God where, where you're, you're finding your significance in drawing into deeper relationship with Him and deeper joy in Him? Let me give you three thoughts here from the psalm. Number one, study His breathtaking attributes. Look in verse 4. For great, everyone say great. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praise he is to be feared above all gods look in verse 6 splendor and majesty are before him strength and beauty are in his sanctuary so you can see here the psalmist is impressed by the lord he's excited about the lord and he's talking about his attributes he's he's good he's strong he's majestic and one of the ways that you and i can treasure god's glory to get caught up in him excited about him is to study who he is to study his character, his nature, his breathtaking attributes. I had another paradigm shifting moment uh, early on when the Lord called me to preach. I uh, raided my dad's uh, bookshelf, and I found a book uh, on the bookshelf called Knowing God. I'd never heard of it before. No one's ever recommended it to me, but it's by uh, a man named J.I. Packer. And I picked it up because I said, well, I want to know God, right? That sounds good. I want to know God. So I picked up the book. And the book, Knowing God, is about God's attributes, his grace, his mercy, his love, his truth, his holiness, um, his, his judgment, 
it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. And I, and I just began to read that book, and it was a book just about God. What makes God God? His attributes. And it was like nourishment for my soul. I never read a book about God. Just a, This is who God is. This is what God is like. This is, this is his nature. This is his character. And it just, it just fed my soul and, and, and helped me to, to, to rejoice in him and, and helped me to treasure him more than I was. So I want to encourage you to study his attributes. Get a, get a good book. I can give you some recommendations on that. You can email me, pastorwade at longviewpoint.org, and I'll send you some, some, some book recommendations if you want to read some more about God's attributes. Uh, of course, just reading the Bible is the first place. Amen. Just get in the Bible and, and read it, and you'll see God's attributes. But then there's some other supplementary things that can help you to study who God is and what he is like, his character and his uh, nature. Number two, study his mighty works. Not just who he is, but what he does. Look in verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Look in verse 5. For the gods of peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. It speaks of God's work of creation there. And so you and I should study his mighty works, what God has done. Uh, of course, the best place to learn about that is in the pages of Scripture. You see God's work of uh, creation. You see God's work of redemption. You see God's miracles, God's supernatural power on display, His majesty on display. And you can study His mighty works. I, I've, always, I've always been moved by two particular stories in the New Testament, uh, the works of, works of Christ. One is the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, that was a very significant moment in his ministry. We know that because all four Gospels record the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle done by Jesus in his earthly ministry that's recorded by all four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was a very significant time, and it was a big deal because Jesus miraculously felt fi uh, fed 5,000-plus people with five loaves of fish and, I mean, five loaves of bread and two fish, right? When we were in Israel, the one little thing I bought was this olive uh, wood carving. It was, a, it was a basket in my office. It was a basket, and it had some some loaves of bread, five loaves of bread, and two fish. And I just love that little that little uh, wood carving because it's a reminder of the power of Christ, the provision of Christ, uh, the supernatural work of Christ. And so I just think about his works, how how he provides. Just he just kept breaking the bread and passing out, breaking the bread, and passing it out. Another uh, another uh, set of stories that always just grips my heart in the Gospels is Jesus giving blind people sight. He's healing people all the time, all, all, all different types of maladies and sicknesses. But I'm just, just the, the drama of someone that's sitting there, they can't see, and all of a sudden they can see. Can you, imagine how, can you imagine how powerful that would be? Just all of a sudden you've been in darkness, and then you can see in the vibrancy of light and color. And, and uh, I, just always, I just love to just think about God's works, what he does, how he works in the world, how he touches people's lives. We should study his mighty works. It's good to read Exodus every year. Read about the parting of the Red Sea, right? And the ten plagues against um, Pharaoh. It's good to read Second Kings every year. Read about Elijah and the showdown on Mount Carmel with the, the prophets of Baal. It's good to read about Jonah. Hey, when you run for God, from God, he knows where you are. It's not going to turn out well for you, and he can even summon a big old fish to get you, right? I mean, it's, good to, it's just good to read about the works of God. Year, that's why I like reading through the Bible every year, because every year I, I know that I'm going to be exposed to these reminders of how God works, his power on display, right? We should study his breathtaking attributes. We should study his mighty works. Third, 
We should then give him the glory that he alone deserves. Look in verse 4. For great is the Lord. After he talks about his marvelous works. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. So when you learn about who he is and what he does, your response should be praise, awe, reverence, uh, glory. Give him the glory that he alone deserves. That's how you treasure God's glory. You learn about God and you praise him for what you learn. Amen? You praise him for who he is. You praise him for what he does. Give him the glory that he alone deserves. And so if we're going to, if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, if we're going to have this same heartbeat of, of declaring God's glory among the nations, first of all, we need to be impressed with the Lord. We need to be excited about him. And then the telling comes next because you can't help but tell, right? Let me, let me share this over in, in Mark chapter uh, 1. Turn to Mark chapter 1 with me. Mark 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority. This is Jesus, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all, what? What's the word there? amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying who what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him so they see jesus on display they see his mighty works what happens next look in verse 21 and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of galilee they were impressed amazed at his authority of teaching his authority of casting out demons and they just can't help but talk about this this Jesus, right? Amazement comes before proclamation. So, let's just back up for a moment. Let's think about it. If the church is not proclaiming the good news in an ever-increasing way, that can only mean that we're just not that impressed by Jesus. Right? That's what, that's what it means. We're just, not that, we're just not that impressed. We're just not that excited. Because we're excited, we will tell. So, God, back in Psalm 96, God's people must treasure God to such a degree that they must tell others about Him. How do you do that? You treasure God's glory. Secondly, you tell all peoples of His glory. That comes next. You treasure Him first, then you tell. Treasure, then tell. Tell all peoples of His glory. Now look back in Psalm 96, verse 3. Declare, there's that word, declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. We are to tell all peoples of his glory. Look in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Now how are we to tell about this God? How, what are we supposed to tell about this God? Well, number one. We should tell with compassion. Look in verse 5. 
For all the gods of the people, we're declaring his glory among the nations. Why? For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The desire to tell others about Jesus is fueled by an understanding of, of, of people's hopelessness apart from God. The desire to tell others is fueled by an understanding of people's hopelessness apart from God. In other words, you're saying, tell these people they're worshiping false gods because these false gods will let them down. They're worthless idols. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, that word, worthless idols, is the Hebrew word elilim, which is kind of close to Elohim. And, and, and most scholars believe there's a Hebrew play on words they're saying. You have Elohim, the one true God. Then you have these Elilim, these, these worthless idols. People think that they have God, but they don't. They have worthless idols that fall short of the real thing. And we should be driven by an understanding that people are hopeless apart from God. I remember one of the times I had this, this feeling of, of compassion for people that were just hopeless uh, I was in, uh, me and Mara, we went on a mission trip as a, a church, and we had some time to go to one of the major landmarks in the capital of Myanmar, uh, which is Yangon. And there's this major landmark called the Shwedagon Pagoda, which is a uh, Buddhist place of worship. And it's a, it's a really large uh, structure, this big gold um, uh, element in the middle of uh, the pagoda. And uh, we went as a team, you had to pay a little bit of money, and you had to take off your shoes, and, and you went up some, actually some escalators, because you had to get up to where the actual uh, place of worship was. Now, I'll never forget, as we were getting to the top of the escalators to arrive at the pagoda to, to look around at the people worshiping um, the different Buddhist um, uh, carvings, over to my right, there's a little room but it was open air, so you could see in the little room. And people were actually making these idols. They were actually, with their hands, you know, crafting these, these statues of Buddha. And here's what they would do. They would make them and then pick them up and carry them to their place, set them down, and then begin to worship. Think about that. Can you imagine worshiping a God that you had to carry around? Can you imagine? That you had to make? And then carry, can you imagine that? And it was just so hopeless, right? And there's, they were fervent and passionate, but misguided in worshiping a false god. And it was hopeless. It was, it was heartbreaking. It was, it, it was, it was very, very dark. And if we're going to tell the peoples of His glory, there should be this this sense of compassion. This this idea that people, apart from a relationship with the one true God, are absolutely hopeless. I mentioned the story of Elijah and the showdown on Mount Carmel. Do you remember the, the background there? He's having a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he says, listen, we'll have a contest. You pray to your God, I'll pray to my God. God answers by fire, is the one true God. And the people, the, the prophets of Baal, are praying and they're, they're crying out, they're cutting themselves, they're in a frenzy, this religious frenzy, asking Baal to answer them. And the Bible says, no one heard them, no one even paid attention. Why? Baal's a false god. There's no God hearing them. No God hearing them. That's hopeless. And, and that's what the psalmist is getting at here when he says, 
All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. They, they, they fall short of the one true God. So we should tell with compassion. Secondly, we, we should tell with conviction. We should tell with conviction. Look in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He, he will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy, all creations joining in worship. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. For he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So, so three things we see here that are, that are hallmarks of, of, of what should drive our telling others of the one true God. He reigns, he judges, he's coming again. That's what he just says here. So as we tell, we need to tell with conviction. Our God reigns. He's the one true God. He will one day judge all of humanity. So you need to be right with him before that day comes. And, and, and we don't know when that day may come, but we do know he's coming again. So we need to be ready. There needs to be an urgency in our telling. So we should go out and tell with conviction that we are representing, we are ambassadors of the one true God who reigns, who judges, who will come again. And so, our job is to make disciples of all the nations. Great Commission declares glory among the nations, Psalm 96. So that means we're to go out and share the good news about Jesus, that we're all lost, hopeless, separated from God, but God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. Jesus came to this earth. He died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve. He died for our sin. After He died on the cross, He was buried. Earlier on the third day, He rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. So that if anyone from any people group, any, any language, any background, if anyone places their faith in Christ, they can be saved and reconciled to God and know Him and worship Him and give Him the glory He alone deserves. That's the, that's the message. That's the gospel. And we're to go with compassion, with conviction, so that the nations can hear this wonderful message. Now, having said all that, how does that apply to us in this room? Okay, How, how should we live this out? What, what should this look like in our day-to-day lives, in our families, in our ministry. Well, in light of this truth, uh, the truth of this psalm, you have three options. You ready? You have three options. You can be a goer, a sender, or disobedient. (laughs) Those are your options. You can be a goer, a sender, or disobedient. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, and only the way Charles Spurgeon can say things. You are either a missionary or an imposter. Pretty strong language, isn't it? You're either either concerned about the nations hearing the gospel and giving God the worship He alone deserves, the glory He alone deserves, or you're missing the point of everything, which is God's glory. You're missing God's heart and God's agenda. For creation. So, you can either be a goer, a sender, or disobedient. Now, what do I mean when I say goer? What do I mean when I say you can be a goer? Here's what I mean by that. It means you can answer God's call to leave your current location and go on a short-term, which might be 10-day trip. We just had a group get back from Uganda. Um, you know, two-week trip. One-week trip, short-term, 
midterm, that may be a summer assignment or a year or a couple year assignment, or a long-term assignment to make disciples. So what I mean by goer, answer God's call to leave your current location, go on a short-term, mid-term, or long-term assignment to make disciples. That's what I mean. And so there are people that, that hear God's call and they leave where they are and go somewhere else for the purpose of making disciples, for the purpose of God getting more glory among the nations. They actually leave and go, okay? And I'll show you in a few minutes where we see that in Scripture, this idea of, of goers. Hey, that, that happens right here in our church. Uh, Trey and Megan are here, and, and uh, they're getting ready to, to go back uh, soon to, uh, to Europe. And uh, they were in South Asia going back to Europe. And uh, we'll hear some more about their story. Uh, before they leave, but uh, but they're they're about to head back, about to head back, and so they actually were living here. Uh, you know, Trey grew up in Hernando, Megan grew up in Olive Branch, and now they're about to take their three kids and 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 go back overseas across the big pond, as they say. Um, they actually heard God's call and left uh, comfort, convenience. Familiar, familiarity and went somewhere else and you know I want you to consider that God may have that for your life um, we, we're asking God to do that by the way uh, it, it, we're praying that God would would call people out of our fellowship that'll go short term trips mid term trips long term trips hey by the way we had more people go on short term trips last year than we've ever had in the history of our church Pretty awesome, isn't it? 100, I think we had 160-some people going short-term mission trips last year. That's awesome. That's a good thing. And so we, we, we want to be about that, uh, people going, uh, actually, an, actually answering God's call. And here's what's interesting. Um, the uh, emphasis has shifted a bit uh, in, in Southern Baptist Missions work in, with our International Mission Board and other organizations as well. But... Uh, we used to kind of think, or our paradigm for missions was, well, if I'm called to go full-time to be a full-time missionary paid by my missions organization, then I'll leave and go. Uh, but there are other pathways for you to go uh, other than just being full, full-time employed by a missions board. And here's what I mean by that. We've been challenged by our leadership to think, okay, um, I have a job. Um, a house, a family. I wonder if I could do this job somewhere else in an area of great need and be a part of a team trying to reach that area of great need and live there, get my living through my job, have my house, have my family, but I'm living in a different area and doing it for the glory of God among the nations so I can make disciples among unreached people groups. So, you know, teacher, you may be able to teach overseas or... Uh, medical field, you can do medical stuff overseas. There are sick people everywhere, amen? Uh, businessman, businesswoman, do that overseas. Uh, or, you know, some, uh, some frontier area in North America, perhaps. Uh, but, but what we're saying is this, you don't have to just be a full-time, to use the phrase, m missionary with a mission board or missions organization to actually leave and go somewhere and make disciples. They're even saying, right now, our leadership's saying, hey, you want to go to college as a student? Go to college in Shanghai. 
It's a bunch of big colleges there. And uh, live there in Shanghai and be on a church planting team with other full-time folks that are living there and, and, and be used by God to make disciples and start churches in that mega city or Mumbai or, you know, Athens or, you know, consider doing what you're doing here but just doing it somewhere else for the glory of God. I think that's pretty awesome. I think that's a, a, a realistic way to think about uh, God actually tapping us on the shoulder and sending us so that we can be a goer. So when I say goer, I mean answer God's call to leave your current location, go on a short-term, mid-term, or long-term assignment to make disciples. Everybody got what I mean by goer? So I want you everybody to consider, okay? Um, everybody consider, you know what? God may call me. I, I, I'm, I need to consider, is God calling me to go? If he is, short-term, mid-term, or, or long-term, or some combination of the, of the three. Now, what do I mean when I say sender? What do I mean when I say sender? Because a lot of people, they say, okay, I'll be a sender, I'll support, I don't have to really do anything. That's great. That's not what I mean by sender. Now, look at my, look at my definition here. Sender is someone that will share the gospel where they are and help others to go to other places of need. So, if you live here, you're the missionary for here. You know how you know that? Because you live here. Right? And so it's not like, well, I'll just support people to go somewhere else and do the work. No, you're, you do the work here where you are, and then send those that go somewhere else. That's, that's what I mean by uh, sender. Um, I was in a denominational meeting years ago, and... Um, and I was fervently making an appeal that that we should we should get more money to the front lines of lostness. I was trying to make an appeal that we should get more people to um, to the to the unreached people groups, the unengaged unreached people groups of the earth, and we should spend more of our money in state to get more people to those places, and and we should make that a priority. And I had this this other pastor in the room. He said, "Hey, say hey." And, and I was the only guy under 50 in the room, I think. And he said, uh, he said, we got lost people in Mississippi, too. Is that true? Yeah. So by us saying we need to send more people to unreached people groups, are we saying that Mississippi lostness doesn't matter? That's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is there are thousands of Baptists living in Mississippi that have the responsibility of talking about Jesus, right? We're the missionaries living here. And we're talking about people that have people groups of tens of thousands or even millions of people that have no one telling them. So yeah, we do evangelism here, we share the gospel here, but we also want to prioritize getting people to where no one's talking about Jesus, where there are no churches, right? I remember one day I was riding around, this is when Abby Faith was, a, was a younger, she must have been, I don't know, five years old, and she was in, in, in the back seat, and I was in my truck, and we were just driving around, and she had the per perception as a five-year-old to say, uh, Dad, there are a lot of churches here, aren't there? We're passing church buildings. And she's right. And that's great. We want more church. We plant churches in Soto County. We want more and more churches so more and more people can be reached. But we also need to understand that there are, pl there are places in the world with no churches. No Christians, no one preaching the gospel. So if we're a sender, 
then we say, okay, we're the missionaries here. This is where God has us living. This is our assignment. We're missionaries here. But we're also thinking about the unreached peoples, and we're going to support people going to the unreached peoples. So share the gospel where you are. Help others go to other places of need. Now, sending involves several things. You can jot these down. This is not in your notes. Sending involves education. In other words, it involves learning about missions. You need to know the needs and know ways that you can impact those needs. Uh, You need to know about unreached people groups. You know what the Great Commission is. That's why I spent some time at the beginning talking about that. Um, Only 70% of churchgoers knew what the Great Commission was, could articulate it. You need to know what the 1040 window is, that section of the world where there's a high concentration or the highest concentration of losses. We can go on about missions education, um, but, but we need it. And we have it here at our church. We start with our preschoolers, uh, teaching them about missions and missionaries and unreached people groups and uh, ministries in different nations and different areas. We have it with our, um, our RAs, our, our boys, our children, our girls, GAs. Uh, our, our students uh, talk about missions. Derek takes them on mission trips. Missions education is vital. Because listen, if we're not teaching people about missions, then we should not expect there to be missionaries going out from our churches. Because it's not even on our, our people's radar screen if we're not teaching them about it. So uh, sending involves education, teaching them about uh, missions. And by the way, by the way, you would be shocked and how much our young people know about missions. And I give credit to our leaders, our teachers that faithfully teach them week after week after week. Uh, they know a lot about what God is doing in the world. And I praise the Lord for that. Sending also involves giving. It takes money. It takes money to live somewhere. It takes money to, to have uh, materials for ministry. It takes money to, to eat and to live and have health care and, and those sorts of things. And so... Uh, to, to be able to send people out to areas of lostness, uh, higher concentrations of lostness, unreached areas, then we must prioritize giving. Uh, one of the major ways we do that is through our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, if you've been around for a while, you know that the church makes a big deal about that. We gave uh, over a quarter of a million dollars uh, last year to Lottie Moon. To, 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 it goes directly to international missions, global missions. And so uh, we're taking up the North American Mission Offering right now for church planting in North America. And so we can give and use our resources to help others go. That's part of being a sender, being a giving uh, church, and being giving uh, people. And here's what I've discovered about church life. If you prioritize missions in your giving, God will take care of the rest of your needs. So we've done a lot of you point. We've made it our priority to give a lot of money away, and God just meets our needs for his glory. You can't outgive God, Amen. Sending also involves nurturing, caring for those that go, ministering to those that go, praying for those that go, being there for those that go. And then I just said it, but praying. Sending involves praying, praying for unreached people groups. We got prayer cards right here, right here. There's national and international prayer needs. There are local things you can pray about, local missions opportunities here in our area. Grab one of these cards, put it in your Bible, put it in your refrigerator. And these are things you can pray about. You can pray about me. You can be a sender by praying for others. Praying is vital. You can pray for folks that go and pray for these unreached people groups to be reached with the uh, gospel. Now, this idea of going and sending, am I just making all this up? 
This is a this is a biblical paradigm. All right, let me show you where this is in the Bible. Turn to Acts chapter thirteen. Acts thirteen, verse one. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul, for the work to which I have called them. They, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So what do we have here? We have a church praying, Lord speak to us, work in our midst. Holy Spirit says, take Barnabas and Saul and send them out. So the church of Antioch sent them. They were senders. Barnabas and Saul were what? Goers. They actually went. This is the beginning of the first missionary journey of Paul. And so we see this going and saying, hey, by the way, Barnabas and Paul were great Christian leaders, great Christian teachers, and and God took to their best Bible teachers away and sent them out to go somewhere else. Pretty extraordinary. Remember when, when the Lord uh, called uh, Megan and Trey. Trey was our student pastor and um, doing a great job and, and a good friend. And, and uh, I was really excited when I heard what the Lord was doing, but I was also like, whew. <laughs> like, oh man. Hate to lose them. But we love to send them. And so... Uh, Sending is a, is a biblical paradigm. Going is a biblical paradigm. Look over in Romans 15. Let me, sh- let me show you again. Romans chapter 15. We'll wrap up in just a few minutes, but let me just show you this. Romans 15, verse 17. Paul writing to the church in Rome. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So he went out, he was sent, he went uh, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition, watch this, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written... Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. So Paul's saying, I want to go, I, I preach the gospel in these areas. I want to go to an area where Jesus has never been preached before. And I want to tell, tell them about Jesus. Look what he says in verse 22. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped in my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, I have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. But notice what he says in verse 24. To be helped on my journey there by you. So he said, I'm going. I need you folks in Rome to send me. Support me. Nurture me. Provide financial resources. uh, Pray for me. I, I need you to send me. So again, we see goers and senders. In the Bible. Let me show you one more. Turn to 3 John. Right before the book of Revelation, you got 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. You got Jude and Revelation. So before you get to Jude, you get to 3rd John. It's just one chapter. Half a page in my Bible. 
Look at 3 John, verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the church. And you got some folks that are uh, going out for the sake of the name. They're going to declare God's glory among the nations, to make disciples of Jesus Christ among all the people groups. And so you should support them in that. You will do well, he says, to send them on their journey. So again, you have goers and senders, senders and goers. That is consistent throughout the pages of Scripture. Notice this quote from J. Campbell White is powerful. He writes, Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Listen to this next sentence. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. Here's what he's saying. You want life, adventure, excitement, fulfillment, purpose? Do you want that in life? You get it from making sure that God's greatest purpose is your greatest purpose. To make his glory known among the nations. You won't find fulfillment in fame and pleasure and riches, but you will find it in working for the eternal plans of God to declare his glory among the nations. So back in Psalm 96, we see here the, the, the psalmist. What does he want? What does he desire? That the whole earth will be full of the praise of the one true God. How will this desire come about? When God's people treasure him and then tell others about him. The way that happens is people going and people sending. Going and sending. Going and sending. Now, back in Psalm 96, and we'll close with this. I love that. I love that first line. I joked about it when I read it, but Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. That, that's not really talking about, you know, a new praise chorus in church, uh, even though there's nothing wrong with new praise choruses in church. Uh, church you know there was a day when amazing grace was a brand new song right it had a publication date can you imagine you know when that song came out people like this this amazing grace what is this new song sing the old stuff anyway that's i'm 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 digressing but really what he's talking about here with this new song is he's talking about more and more peoples tribes tongues ethnicities people groups hearing about him, and then worshiping him with a new song of praise. Uh, a song in their tongue, a, a song in their, in their cultural framework, singing new songs of praise to the one true God. And so the question tonight is this, can you hear those new songs? Can, can you hear them? New songs in 
new places, in new languages, as our great God gets more and more glory from more and more people groups. Does that motivate you? Another song for Jesus, another singer around the throne giving him the glory that he alone deserves.